The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 23. I left you last time after we had returned with our hornets from New Zealand, having had a very productive and interesting few weeks working with the Kiwi A4 Skyhawks. We soon settled back into our squadron headquarters at RAAF Williamtown and started to work up some maritime strike tactics against the ships of the Australian Navy. These were early days for the Australian Hornets and the anti-ship missiles that were to be purchased had yet to be properly integrated into the aircraft's weapons system. As such, we couldn't fully program the weapon to attack a specific target, so we simulated launching the sea-skimming missiles in a reversionary boresight mode. This meant that, once it had armed itself, the missile would tootle happily along and lock onto the first target it saw. As such, we aimed it at a capital ship and tried to avoid accidentally engaging the picket ships that encircled the more valuable vessels in the fleet that they were defending. Finding the fleet was always a challenge, but we left that up to our AP-3 Orion brethren who would quarter the seas until they detected a few suitable Jolly Jack tars drifting around the Tasman Sea in their scruffy scowls hiding behind the seagulls that followed their flotsam and gash. Once identified, the Orion would start broadcasting at timed intervals on HF a coded briefing with all the information we needed to coordinate an attack. The P-3 had its own anti-ship missiles, but the idea was to simultaneously attack the same targets at the same moment to saturate their defences so that a few missiles would get through and send some to the bottom. For us, it meant writing down and decoding all the information from the broadcast, which included details like latitudes and longitudes, the disposition of the fleet, attack directions and timings, etc. Then we had to type that all into our nav kit, and the leader of the formation, usually a four-ship, had to get us to the start point at the right time and speed and juggle the attack heading to avoid any lesser targets that were in the way. Once running in, we would ease up a little to make contact with our own radars and refine the numbers before getting down onto the waves again. Then it was just a matter of getting to the correct launch range and popping off our imaginary missile. However, things were never quite that easy because we were doing this at low level and at night with just a radar altimeter to stop us from becoming fish bait. Whilst the leader had to do a lot of scribbling, mental arithmetic and typing, the rest of the formation had to stay in a visual battle formation on him as they did more or less the same as well as searching the skies for fighters all in the disorientating pitch black of absolute darkness, whilst hand-flying the aircraft at eight miles a minute. At that heightened speed, it would take a fraction of a second to slip down into the inky black ocean. After a few of these missions, we started using the two-seaters as a lead aircraft so that someone in the back could do all the paperwork, a considerably safer option. 
It was, as we were working up these tactics, that I had a few diversions from the usual missions. There was going to be a fly-past of some stadium in the town of Newcastle in celebration of some Antipodean occasion, and we were providing a foreship with me at the front. The briefing was all about the minimum height and maximum speed, and that was about it. We had a guy on the ground to spy out the situation, and apparently there was a roof dais for the dignitaries, so I decided to fly over the edge of the arena in front of them, rather than the middle, where their view would be obstructed by the cover. Sadly, there was some confusion as to which way the bigwigs were all facing, and we went behind them, not in front. So that was the last one of those I was given. We also did some fighter affiliation, with a few transports like the C-130 Hercules and the venerable de Havilland DHC-4 Caribou. It would have been too easy to engage them with long-range sparrows, so we restricted ourselves to sidewinders and guns. The heavies had their ramps down with people watching out of the back and the other crew members positioned at windows all round the aircraft. With so many eyeballs searching the skies, it was hard to creep up on them, and as soon as we were spotted, they would turn into us to hide their IR hotspots and make gun attacks a difficult option. Still, it was all good fun, and I got a ride in the back of a caribou to see it from their side. I also became qualified to fly air tests to check out various post-maintenance issues, particularly engine air tests. This involved climbing to altitude to shut down and relight the motors at the edge of the envelope to ensure that they worked as advertised. The only ones that caused me a little concern were the double-engine air tests, as I was convinced that one day, amongst the myriad of shutdowns and relights, shutdowns and relights, left and right, left and right, that I would get confused and end up with both shut down at the same time. Over the years, I flew a bunch of such sorties, one of which had me being recalled from leave to fly, with the understanding that I was allowed to do so without shaving my beard that I always grew when not at work. Beards were usually completely verboten, so the squadron got the base photographer to record the event for posterity. Then the exercise season was upon us again and we deployed up to Darwin for exercise pitch black. We were joined by American B-52s, A-6s, EA-6s, F-15s and RAAF F-111s and Mirages from the last remaining Mirage Squadron, number 75. We did plenty of combat in the workup phase, particularly against the Eagles, who always gave us a run for our money, but I also took a pair of Hornets against four Mirages. Well, that would have been fair, but my wingman broke his aircraft, so I ended up in a 1v4. I can't quite remember how the engagements went, but I expect that I came back with some shrapnel damage. Pitch Black lived up to its name and we spent a lot of time in the dark ranging out over the Timor Sea in defence of Australia looking for Red Air, who rarely seemed to be there but when they did arrive they attacked in overwhelming force. It was immediately after my return to Williamtown that I did my back-in during a 2v1 combat sortie. 
The Hornet's seat was right back at a slight angle, which meant that when you wanted to look back between the fins to check your six, you had to lean forward against the pull of the straps and then twist around. I joined a growing list of guys who had damaged their lower backs doing this under high G-loads. The base medical centre had physiotherapists to treat these problems, but it was something that would trouble me forevermore. In 1971, the Australians had joined a series of agreements known as the Five Powers Defence Arrangements. The five nations involved were all members of the Commonwealth and once belonged to the British Empire. The FPDA provided defence cooperation between the countries by establishing an integrated air defence system for the Malayan Peninsula and Singapore, based at the Royal Malaysian Air Force Base Butterworth in the northwest on the coast near the island of Penang. The base hosted detachments of aircraft from the Five Powers and the Australians maintained a constant presence, deploying aircraft for six weeks or more at a time. These deployments were also timed to coincide with major exercises that involved the Five Powers and other friendly nations, such as Exercise Lima Passatu, Five United. On the 23rd of August 1988, I climbed into a 21-20 as part of a six-ship formation bound for Bali via Darwin. A province of Indonesia and east of Java, Bali appeals to all who visit through its sheer natural beauty of looming volcanoes and lush terraced rice fields that apparently exude peace and serenity. Sadly, Bali's Ngurahai Airport didn't quite live up to that, but we didn't stay long before carrying on north up the Malayan Peninsula to Butterworth. Built just before the Second World War, the base was initially an RAF airfield that was transferred to the Australian Air Force in 1958, and following Malaysian independence in 1970, control was passed on to the Royal Malaysian Air Force, although the Australians remained co-tenants. My first impressions of Malaysia was of a country mostly covered in dense evergreen rainforest, often swamp-like near the coasts, but which climbed up into mountainous forests in the higher areas. We arrived towards the end of the southwest monsoon, with high temperatures, humidity and rainfall, particularly from the huge thunderstorms that regularly built in the afternoons, releasing torrential downpours that temporarily flooded the ground. With an average annual rainfall of 2.5 metres, the wettest region of Malaysia receives a stunning 5 metres of rain a year. That's 16.5 feet of water. After finding our rooms in the rather quaint old RAF mess, with an anteroom that jutted out towards a beach, full of overstuffed chairs and wooden walls that could be completely removed to allow a soft breeze to pass through on those hot, humid afternoons when we came in for tiffin. After a quick flight to look around the local area and pop into our main diversions of Kwantan and Kuala Lumpur, we took on the local Malaysian Air Force guys in their A4s and F5s, plus some Singaporean F5s, before practising some mixed fighter force tactics. 
This was an RAF procedure that was developed to allow less sophisticated fighters to formate on more advanced machines and follow them into a merge with enemy aircraft. Once visual with the enemy, they could then independently turn and engage those bandits that were still alive. In this way, we could lead the A4s, F5s and even venerable hawker hunters from regional friendly forces to the enemy. During our time there, working up with the local air forces, the RAF arrived with a beautiful Vickers KC-10 tanker and four of the new Tornado F-3 air defence variant of the successful Tornado GR-1 ground attack aircraft. All of a sudden, the bars were full of old RAF friends from 29 Squadron who had been co-opted to take part in what was in reality a round-the-world sales drive by British Aerospace for this new fighter aircraft. I was, of course, very interested to know a little about this new machine that had taken over from my beloved Phantom, but was surprised how reticent they were to sing its praises, and particularly reluctant to pit it against our hornets. Eventually, one of our junior pilots managed to tempt a tornado pilot into a little turning and burning, and within a very short time, he had delivered a knockout blow with some very convincing gun camera film of the F-3, wings forward, out of energy and out of ideas. From my point of view, the deployment was a great success, and not just for the flying. A quick ferry ride across from the base to Penang Island and a whole plethora of wonderful bars and restaurants opened up to us, which we often attacked in the form of a traps run. From the ferry terminal we would pair up and grab a trishaw, a rickety pedal-powered two-man transport, which we hired for the night. Then, with the first bar named, we would begin a race across town between a dozen or so trishaws, with the occupants urging on the drivers with promises of big tips and shouted encouragement of Jalan Jalan, which I subsequently discovered means road or street. But somehow it had the effect of speeding up the skinny, grinning men who peddled us, chewing their cat leaves and ringing little bells that created some kind of force field to protect us from the other mad drivers as we wove through the traffic. Some of the slowest even threw their drivers into the back and peddled the treacherous, unstable machines themselves. The first to arrive at the bar sprinted in and ordered a round of his choice of drinks for us all, whilst the last to arrive had to pay for them. We slammed those down, flirted with the pretty bar girls, and then it was off to the next of the traps, whilst doing our best to escape from the ladies of the night, and particularly the shims, a portmanteau of she and him. The final trap of the night was inevitably the Hong Kong bar in Chulia Street. A favourite of military units for over 70 years, it was a home from home and sported genuine memorabilia from the thousands of servicemen who drank their ice-cold beer there decade after decade. 
When closing time came, one of the bar girls would gather together what remained of the clientele for a photo that would go into the innumerable albums that adorned the bar so that the next time you visited you could remind yourself who was still amongst the walking wounded at the end of a traps run. One particular memory of that detachment that sticks in my mind was on my 34th birthday, which I celebrated whilst being out there. We were drifting home from near the Singapore border at the end of the day's operation. We had said goodbye to the hunters, who had been on our wings and were now heading back to Changi Air Base, and our KC-10 had topped us up at Endex, so we climbed 50,000 feet over the growing thunderstorms and turned towards Butterworth. As we drifted over the huge, bubbling Q-Nims, we watched the tornadoes 20,000 feet below trying to weave their way around the dark, dangerous clouds as they massed across their path. And I thought again what a wonderful aircraft the Hornet was. We were chatting to a civilian air traffic unit when a voice broke through to me, deep and sonorous. Nick, it said. This is God on guard. Happy birthday. One of my friends, an Aussie fighter controller, who had been working us that afternoon and guiding us onto the enemy raids, had cheekily accessed the military UHF emergency frequency that we all listened out on to pass a birthday greeting. All too quickly, our six weeks were up and we pointed our hornets back towards home to restart the usual routine of weapons practice, strike missions, air combat, close air support, maritime strike, fleet support and all the rest. In the meantime, Christmas came and went. We learned to scuba dive and Jilly discovered she was pregnant again. And my world started spinning. No, really spinning. Walking round the house at night in the dark, I found myself bumping into walls because I couldn't walk straight, even when I was sober. Bending over or turning around, I felt dizzy for a moment, but as soon as I straightened up, I felt fine. In all other things, I was on top of the world, but then I was climbing into a jet for a 2v2 combat mission. I was standing on the aircraft seat, doing my ejector seat checks, and when I finished, I turned around to face forwards and sat down. For a gut-wrenching moment, the airfield span around me for two complete revolutions before it settled down, with me hanging onto the canopy rails for grim death. I couldn't deny it anymore, and the realisation that my flying career might have ended hit home. I had vertigo. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. We're also a standalone podcast. If you enjoy listening to us, then how about helping us out by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks. And many thanks for listening.